The Fasarius Chapter House is the world's first headquarters for Christian ministerial innovation, bringing preachers, leaders, and innovators together to collaborate on new liturgies, resources, and responses to the challenge of our times. This podcast explores the ever-changing era of perpetual upheaval in which effective ministry requires constant imagination, creativity, and change. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us again on the Chapter House podcast. I'm here with my uh, good friend, Kay Holdy, the, the lead pastor at Spring Arbor Free Methodist Church. Why don't you say hi, Kay? Hi, everybody. Yeah. I'm yeah. glad to be here with Dave. Yeah, this is good. It's super fun. And normally we have two guests today. It's just Kay and I for a conversation about women in ministry. And because the Chapter House podcast focuses specifically on innovation in Christian ministry, we want to talk about the increasing prominence of women in ministry and what kind of ministerial innovation uh, uh, reveals itself through gender equality and representation. And then we also want to talk about how women can innovate. So we're not just going to advocate for women. We also want to have a frank conversation, a helpful conversation, uh, both from a woman and from a, a strong advocate for women in ministry for how women can, can move forward. So, yeah. I think the realization that just hit me was we have one woman on the podcast with you today because there's still not enough women in the industry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. To be, to be fair, I did have I have I have had many female guests who are in ministry up to this point, but I did, I, I, I feel bad when I double dip and go back to the same people. And then I had I had two uh, two good friends that were going to be with us today that both had to bow out last minute. So yeah, I'm it. just messing with you. No, I'm, you're not. Yes. You know? <laughs> Kay doesn't think I like women. That's, <laughs> that's how we're getting started. Not true. Not true. Well, I think we met because you and your board wanted to reach out yeah. to welcome me in part because I was a woman stepping into a place where they had never had a woman leader before. Yeah, we uh, I think it was Becky Vite at the time, one of our, our female former staff members, former elders at Westwinds, good friend of mine, but she, but she'd heard to put it gently that you're getting your ass kicked. <laughs> So we thought, oh, this is terrible. We want to, you know, as a as a family, we want to reach out to you and say we love you and welcome to town and welcome to ministry. And yeah, welcome. and that was really really cool. I appreciated it, but that's how we started yeah. talking. So we became buddies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so, why don't you catch us up to speed then? Tell us a little bit about your story and so far as you're comfortable. I know you'll be more circumspect than I would be. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. So my story. Well, I didn't grow up in the church. So in terms of women in ministry, I had no really preconceived notions sure. about what that looked like. Although my parents were brought up in religious homes, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic. So there were no, you know, women in leadership yeah. roles in the, uh, you know, unless right. you count what nuns really do. Yeah. I actually don't know what nuns do. I have no, every time I see them in a movie, I go, what are they, I don't know what they do. What well, do they do? Yeah. Time? That's yeah. like saying pastors in movies, just like dust the sanctuary yeah. and rearrange flowers on the piano yeah. or something. Yeah. The guy from yeah. Seventh Heaven or whatever. Like, oh. But anyway, so I had really no thoughts about, uh, women in ministry and no thoughts about Jesus at all until I was in my early 20s and then came to faith and um, we were in a reformed church and mm. it was n not affirming of women right. in pastoral ministry at all and so as I was taught and discipled that was just not a part of pastoral ministry I never thought about it and then eventually we ended up in a free Methodist church, which is a pretty small denomination. Mm -hmm. And that particular church had never had a woman leader in it either. So the first time that I heard women pastors come in to preach, they were missionaries, number one. So that's mm -hmm. always a box that people can right. put women in acceptably, which huh. eventually someone pointed out to me how potentially racist that is, like as white Americans were okay with women being the ones who preach the gospel to other countries and other people, but of not to our people. That, yes. That's funny. I hadn't even considered that. Yeah. That's, that's definitely something you'll read in some of the, um, no, like somebody's going to defend that or that's a criticism that people, that's a common that. criticism that it's oh, racist because yeah. we don't accept it for, you know, hmm. The dominant culture Americans, but we do accept it if you're going to some other country and some other people group. It's okay. That's funny. No, in, and in I would say Methodist. that was kind of true in my in my local hmm. context. Nothing that the Free Methodist Church would have ever said yes to, sure, but right. it was kind of 
true in my local context. And so as I just started getting more serious about, oh, if I'm going to follow Jesus, that probably means I should ask him what, what he wants me to do with my life. And there was just, you know, like increasing levels of surrender to what that meant. And so as I was surrendering, I was also discovering gifts for teaching and Mm -hmm. that put me in circumstances where, oh, am I going to be speaking to men and women in the same room? And how do people feel about that? Did you have to wrestle theologically yourself about oh, whether or not yeah. that was okay? I did, oh, yeah, okay. because when I was first taught and discipled, it was all in sure, context where church, it was yeah. not acceptable and it was unbiblical. Right. And then um, I went through some of those different levels of leadership where it was like, oh, I'm teaching kind of a Sunday school class to men and mm-hmm. women and some men aren't okay with that. And then, right. I'm te- you know, like at different levels of what the church considered having authority mm-hmm. it was questioned and so then when i went into the process of ordination and then, I, this is all in a free methodist church right yeah. which, is, which is historically yes a big advocate for ordination. oh absolutely i like, mean since its founding in the 1860s the, right bg roberts and yes. his wife sort of co-founded the denomination yes she was a very prominent person and he articulated heavily yeah. the biblical defense for women wrote a great yeah. wrote a great book yeah. <laughs> on yeah. ordaining women um, in the 19th century. So I always tell yeah. people it is pre 20th century, you know, feminism that you associate, like right. those who don't condone women in ministry, they often associate it with, you know, the feminism of the, okay. Like it's a fad. Yeah. Like uh-huh. the 1960s and seventies kind of created that. And uh-huh. then the eighties and nineties reacted appropriately by, you know, like nipping that in the butt and, (laughs) and in many denominations, even ones that had had women pastors, um, actually revoked the opportunity for women to be ordained in that period of time. So really, I hadn't heard anything. Yeah. Like, um, you know, EV free is really, there are no, there are no women now there. The the term is, uh, is complementarian, right? When women are not allowed, you know, or there's a, there's a, a more misogynistic version where they're not allowed to speak or, or right. walk on their hind legs or whatever. But the but the I think the more common version is complementarianism, where women women have to follow. You know? Right. So anyway, all of these things started to kind of just come to me as I started more and more to use the gifts that mm-hmm. I was realizing God had given me for the sake of the body, and then I. Um, felt called to ordination, but I thought, no, you know, I'll just go, we have an ordained diaconate that you could get into. And I thought, I'll just do that because that won't, my big reason for not pursuing pastoral ministry and that leadership was because it might create division in the body. That was always the thing that was said to me and the thing that I received, like, okay, whether I think it's right or not, I don't want to create division. Um, and disunity by doing this (laughs) and so I just kept dancing around it for Mm -hmm. a few years and really wrestling with it and I was reading so many different books and trying to figure out theologically what I understood and there was a point year after year in January I was doing these 40-day partial fasts and prayer focus and it was like three years in a row that this whole thing of not really surrendering to God's call in my life was 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 part of that and then I kind of had this vision of um chasing me chasing my own tail like I just couldn't come to a place of settled peace Mm -hmm. and the Lord finally said if you don't step forward into pastoral ordination you're being disobedient yeah and I went Oh, <laughs> okay. Well, I <laughs> well, guess since you put it like that, yeah. yeah. Like I uh, disobedient. Well, then I'm gonna stop trying to theologically understand right now. I'm yeah. just gonna do what I hear the Lord telling me to do. I actually stopped reading everything because it's mm-hmm. like, of course, you can justify the yes and the no from sure. Scripture, like so many other things. And so I just felt like I had to have the courage to step forward, even if people were going to reject that. And some of the people that rejected that were in our family. And so that was really... In your church family or in your like bio family, like your um, your extended family? In my, in my family, my in-laws. So who are really like my, my spiritual parents. Yeah. 
Um, and it was painful and there were some really hard conversations and then it created some conflict with, um, my husband and my father-in-law. And so just a, a lot of times that were really challenging for me to say, is this really what I'm supposed to do? Is this really worth it? Yeah, right. um, because I never wanted to be like the poster child for women in ministry. I did not feel like I was carrying some kind of banner for women. Right. It was really like, I want to be obedient to God and I want to use the gifts that he gave me for the sake of his body. You know, can I just say, I'm so glad to hear that part of your story because because I think there's a, a call of God upon the life of my daughter to be in ministry. And, and of course, you know, that's for her to sort out, you know, and that's kind of my dad's sense. And I could be projecting, you know, mm-hmm. right. Um, but one of my, my dad fears is that growing up in the Midwest, which is so theologically conservative, is that she's going to, she's going to fall in love with and or marry a complementarian who puts her in a box, who, who speaks against the voice of God and the calling of God's Holy Spirit on my daughter. And, and she's going to have to wrestle with, is this worth family conflict? So I'm so glad that you shared that part of your story and that, and that you decided it was worth it because maybe it's just an imaginary fear, but I bet you there's somebody else's daughter out there who's right. having to have the same argument, who's sure. having to have the same debate. You know? One of my best friends, her daughter's first serious boyfriend of a couple of years, it was that kind of a story. Like, yeah. So my friend is ordained. Yeah. Her, her daughter obviously yeah. believes that, um, you know, an egalitarian ministry and marriage and so when she started dating this guy, it was kind of a big, kind of a big constant, uh, like this just low-grade hum that was always there in terms of really right. being excited about the relationship. So it was just that. Uh, my own daughter would never date someone who, <laughs> who wasn't okay with it. Um, yeah. She's pretty outspoken about it. But my husband, I mean, sure. oh, he had no... Right. He had just hadn't really thought about it or considered it. And then he definitely did not sign up to marry a pastor. Right. Definitely. Right. And I think that's one of those interesting things that we look at women and we, we say like, oh, they had that, that sense that they were called to be a pastor's wife, wife yeah. when they were in college or something. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, really interesting. It's you're called to be a pastor's wife. I have yet to meet a man who said I'm called to be a pastor's husband. I tell you, because I, you know, I train a lot of pastors. I work in different seminaries. I consult with different denominations. And I tell you, the the sense of being uh, unpleasantly surprised among husbands whose wives go into ministry is huge. Yeah. Um, And I'd love to hear you talk more about that because because probably the number one thing I hear from women in ministry is that. And they would never say it like this, but certainly what I hear is they're almost punished at home uh, for that. The, the sense that like they're, there's a low grade frustration that they're, they work these kind of hours or that mm-hmm. they have this kind of ambition or they have this kind of passion. There's a sense in which the, the husbands will ask of the wives, how can you leave our family so much in the way that, that some wives ask of their husbands when their husbands are in ministry, but far fewer. Um, so what were some of those tension points and then how did you, and Dave's your husband, right? How did you and Dave work through it? Um, yeah, I think timing for me was easier than some other women who know this call in their life from a young age in yeah. terms of family conflict. The timing worked out easier for me right. because by the time I was ready to really be in full-time ministry, my kids were somewhat older. Oh, sure. And so, so it was not like easier. they were diapers or you didn't have to make them more Right. And, yeah. Well. I could have, but I didn't. <laughs> they were they were all contributing, that's for sure. Um, and I think my kids knew uh, the cost of ministry on a family, just like yours would. Yeah. Um, but not from that little bitty baby age. Right. And occasionally, I get some questions from women who say, "How did you do this?" And I, you know, I say, "I didn't do it when I was having babies." And so it would be incredibly challenging and I could see more stress on a marriage relationship because, you know, when you have your kids, you're navigating who's doing what for the kids, no matter what your jobs are, what your vocations are. So to then add to that new navigation of the, the responsibility, the fact that you're doing it for the church. And I've heard a lot of, well, 
I've heard some women say that one of the struggles too is um, we all say you're supposed to love Jesus most and then your spouse, but for <laughs> women who are pastors and yeah. their husbands, it can feel incredibly obvious. Um, like, oh, wow, you really do love Jesus first <laughs> and then me. <laughs> That's amazing. And somehow I think women take that better when their husband's the pastor than when, sure. you know, the husbands are well, realizing. Maybe, and maybe they don't have as many models of it. I mean, yeah. I, I think that increasingly I think it takes a remarkably strong, confident, healthy, masculine man to have an alpha female for a wife in ministry. And I have yeah. such tremendous regard for, for that. Well, what's interesting in our relationship, you know, we're both leaders. Yeah. I mean, he is, and I would say he's the more high D personality. I'm yeah. the, he's the more, um, dominant. dominant. I'm the more influencer. So, uh, he's never felt run over by me by any means. Right. Um, He's and a doctor, so, right? So, yeah, so it's he's, not like it's not like he's bagging groceries and, and And I think I think it, that has made it easier here in this church. Um people don't have they're not going, gosh, well what's he gonna do? Because we know what our pastor's wives have always done. Right. There he's a physician, so it's yeah. like the, he's busy, he's got things of his own to be doing. <laughs> Why and... isn't he leading the choir? Why isn't he playing piano? <laughs> oh, or, good Lord. Or putting on the potluck? <laughs> We'd yeah. be dismissed immediately if either of us <laughs> left the, led the choir. But, yeah, so I would say for us, the process, partly because once I got into the process and I finally said yes, I did experience some opposition and mm-hmm. I did experience some of those things that uh, make some women bitter about it and yeah. had some really painful times. And interestingly, one of the leaders that I served under, he has now left our denomination for mm. a complementarian denomination. Oh, really? And so it's kind of like, ah, oh, it all, yeah. <laughs> it all makes sense. Yeah, sure. You can see now, where some of the right? I, I do think, and there's a, a, historically, there's a theological term called adiaphora. And it's a Greek word that means things indifferent. And it refers to things indifferent of our sal- to our salvation. And it's a way that we talk about theological differences. Um, or basically areas that we can agree to disagree upon. You know, right. like, I still think someone's a Christian, even if they don't agree with every single thing that I think biblically. Right. Um, and, the, and those are the adiaphora. And I, I really do think that this issue of women ordination is adiaphora. You, you can be a complementarian and absolutely be a full you know, Jesus loving Christian. But I also think it's a really important issue. And I really think, I really think the other side is wrong. I mean, deeply wrong. I don't think they're (laughs) sinfully wrong. I don't think that they're hateful. I really, for all my jokes, and it is fun to joke, I don't think they're misogynistic. I just think they're, they were really malformed. Yeah, yeah, some of them, absolutely, sure. Just like some uh, egalitarians are are kooky and and don't take the Bible seriously. There's there's some complementarians that are, that are, you know, hateful or whatever. Um, but I do think there's a, it's a real horrible misreading of scripture uh, to, to limit women. And and if, for those of you who don't are unfamiliar with the arguments, um, there are what we refer to as two limiting passages, uh, both in the New Testament, both in the writings of Paul, that at first blush seem to limit the public role of women in ministry. Uh, don't, don't permit a woman to have authority over a man. Don't permit a woman to, to speak in public. Th- those are the two passages. Um, and when you read those, at, at first glance, you go, yeah, okay, that seems like women aren't supposed to be allowed to do that. However, if you look at the whole corpus, the whole, the whole canonical witness of Scripture, then you ask the question, what did women do? You find out that women led, like uh, Deborah. You, you find out that women prophesied, like Philip's daughters, like in, like Deborah, like Miriam, like Huldah. Um, you find out that, that women were leading early churches, that women were teaching. You know, you think of um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. You think of, I mean, you think of, of, of Lydia. I mean, there's, there's so many examples. So either all of those women in the Bible that the Bible supports are somehow in violation of the Bible <laughs> or maybe there's a possibility we've misunderstood Paul's intent in these right. two verses out of the 60,000, um, which is of course where I land. And, and, and then it's re- it's really hard to look at any church and e- even complementary churches and, and imagine what they would be like if women weren't doing anything. 
I mean, if women weren't leading, whatever term you call it, because they have all kinds of fancy terms, it's not really leadership. They're just the ones who coordinate. And they're just the ones who right. divvy up the work. And they're just the ones who cast vision. And they're not leading, though. I mean, whatever term you call it, if you took out all the women in leadership from even our most conservative churches, they wouldn't be there. They just wouldn't be functioning. And then, you know, historically, look at the incredible women that we have. Um, Amy Semple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare Church in the 19th, uh, 19th or 8th, 20th century in, in Los Angeles. You think uh, historically about people like uh, Teresa of Avila. Um, uh, um, uh, who's the other one I'm thinking of that has all the funny, funny, funny um, uh, supernatural ecstatic experiences? Um, it, it'll come to me. But, you, you know, there, there's... Even in, in the catacombs in, in Rome, when I went on a sabbatical a few years ago, in the third century, there's a fresco, like just outside of the Vatican, that shows a female pastor administering the Eucharist. And so you, we have historical evidence that within three centuries of, of the resurrection, women in the Catholic Church tradition, which does not currently ordain women, um, we're, we're at the highest levels of, of priestly function. So, I mean, you know, historically, it doesn't wash to limit women. Biblically, it doesn't wash to limit women. So practically, functionally, it doesn't wash to limit women. So that's why, for me, it, it seems like such a r ridiculous issue. But I, but I try and be gracious and don't, and don't, <laughs> I don't really do a good job with that. But I'm trying. Well, and it goes all the way back to creation for the people who support right. it, right? right? They look in Genesis and and they would rather read out of a King James translation that says, you know, yeah. a suitable help meet. Like right. you're, you're the helper. Yeah. And I feel like a very quick reading of the Old Testament and you see that the that word for helper is used most often like 18 out of 21 times Forgot. for the Lord. Yeah, himself. Yeah. So it's hard to say that that word would designate some kind of, um, you know, subservient status, right. like oh, yeah. weaker, God less able, right, yeah, yeah, less yeah, yeah. able to have authority, less capable of leading. Now, I was reading in the, in the book escapes me. Maybe I'll put it in the comments on the on the podcast. But this I, was fascinating. I'd never heard this before. But I was reading a rabbi, uh, a contemporary rabbi currently living in Jerusalem, who said actually the best rendering of Ezer, the, the word that you're talking about, the, mm -hmm. the helper suitable unto himself, is how we typically translate it, is... is <laughs> what's that? Have you seen that one? That, that it's face-to-face, -face, the rendering? I've oh. seen that from a rabbi. No, this the, he says that it's actually a, a helper against himself. That the whole, it's a sparring partner. It's somebody to check your blind spots, somebody to help you think around corners. It's it's a, a literally a partner. But that but that 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 sense in which the the person is there to call BS on you. Yeah. I go well. That makes way more sense. I mean, <laughs> that, that seems like yeah, marriage. That's, that's right. That, that's every male female relationship <laughs> on the planet backwards and forwards through time. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I had just recently read that idea of face to face the the suitable hmm. part for helper so that sparring partner that you're face yeah. to face with that person um it is a much different picture than what gets presented to so many people yeah. that impacts then well this is just how women were at creation they were yeah, inferior and then, you know, well, what does it mean? She was taken from Adam's rib and this, like, right. it's all this rationale that gets born out of a, a bad translation in the first place. Yeah. So. Yeah, the, the whole hierarchical argument is very, is very strange to me. Um, doesn't, doesn't quite hold. And I know there are lots of people that can go with um, egalitarian leadership in a church, but not in a marriage. And there are different passages then that you're looking at and and dealing with, and so there's all sorts of ways that I think sure, we, like we come to these husbands and that's what you're talking about Ephesians. Well, yeah, and I think yeah. the really contentious piece of that is um, the head or the source, yeah, the because when you yeah. yeah, like if yeah. you translate it as source instead of the head in terms yeah. of head authoritarian head. Yeah. It's different than the source, as in creation. Yeah, but I think you know, in that passage in particular, you know, the the idea is that wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. I mean, that's that's in there. That's clear. Um, but that husbands are meant to love their wives like Christ loved the church. And I always thought, if you know, if you stop reading at submission, you come around with a really one sided relationship. You know, the guy's in charge. You know, you'll do what I say because you got to submit. If you, but if you understand how Christ loved the church, Christ died for the church. 
So, so show me a husband who's willing to die to his own desires. Pretty high level of submission. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Show me a husband who's willing to die to his own preferences, and I'll show you a wife who's ready to submit, because that kind of love inspires devotion, and it's a reciprocal relationship. That again, I I just don't see. um, It takes a very, it takes a very weak man to to fall back on those submission passages uh, as a way to justify. Um, you know, why they should be in charge. Well, again, you know, the way most people learn the Bible, not people who are reading it in the original language, but when they are learning the Bible, the just the translation and sure. the, help. the yeah. subheadings and the way that they even break that passage, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right. And then this long sentence that in our <laughs> translation doesn't look like one sentence. And they yeah. take that verse out of yeah. that subheading on marriage. And so it looks like two totally different concepts when in reality it was presented right. as one. And it all begins with submit to one another, not yeah. wives submit to your husband. No, I do think it's best practice um, if you want to correctly interpret the scripture, or if you want to more correctly interpret the scripture, because nobody's got a perfect interpretation of the whole Bible. I mean, we're all we're all a work in progress. Our understanding is all growing. But the best practice, I really think, is to read, especially the epistles in their entirety, preferably out loud, because that's how they were transmitted to the churches early on. And and all of those, including the Book of Revelation, th- those books are a very different experience. To be, again, consumed in their entirety because all those little bumps and bruises get leveled out as opposed to, you know, zeroing in the microscope on one word or one context, you know. So to hear them in large, and then and then they're a very different experience to be heard. A very different experience to be heard rather than just read. And and in the epistles in particular, you know, the, we never quote the first 20 verses or the last 20 verses of any of the epistles because we just think well this doesn't help I'm not, I can't apply it right away you know all that stuff about love and identity that's all just hogwash get, get to the sins <laughs> to that the, someone else shouldn't yeah. do what are the rules and the doctrine that yeah, I yeah exactly yeah. and I go well no wonder we think Paul's a goof you know <laughs> just we take out all this humanity and, and just zero in on, on you know what kind of polity he wants us to have and, and a very skewed understanding of the Bible as a result Sorry, there's me and all my rants. Yeah, there yeah, yeah. we go. So when you when you came to Michigan, you took the, you were the first female lead pastor of the church we're at now. Yeah, right? which is a great church. I mean, I mean the, the the church has been a fantastic church, a huge support to our community, a real a beacon. 152 years. years old. Yeah, well, that's how old I feel after COVID. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I've been pastoring for 152 years. Yeah, I keep joking. I'm going to have like the first term president comparison. Like when you see like Barack Obama in 2012 and 2016, like he's youthful yeah. and then he's suddenly gray and like yeah. wrinkly looking. That's how I feel after just 18 months. Well, I'm going to be translucent. <laughs> I can't get any grayer. I'm going to be see-through like like you know parchment paper or something so but but even though it was a great church and even though it's surrounded by great people in a great community there's some challenges coming in as a woman right for the first sure. time yeah. yeah so some of that happened before i ever got there which is nice you know like yeah. the attrition of people who, <laughs> who didn't want to give that a try um and a lot of people, one of the things that's interesting you know the the Free Methodist Church in Southern Michigan is deeply rooted. It's old here, yeah. and there are tons of them. So compared yeah. to the Northwest where I came from, where they're much more dispersed, like right. there are a lot of Free Methodist churches. And so people here think they are the most Free Methodist of Free Methodist people <laughs> that there are. And yet they were not okay with women lead pastors. And it's right. like, well, really, this has been... A part of who we are since the 1860s. So you're missing something about who we are and what our distinctives are. And and the freedom for all people to minister and their giftedness is one of the essential freedoms of the denomination. So it it was kind of an eye-opener for me and for some other people. But I do feel like I've had some conversations and definitely with some very sweet older people who will say, well, my buddy didn't think it was going to be right, but now he's okay with it. They all tell on each other. I was always open minded, but my friend, you know, he's had a problem. They all tell on each other. Um, And I think, interestingly, 
and this can happen in a larger church with a lead pastor, but I think that most of the evaluation comes based on my preaching. Yeah. Um, as opposed to what kind of leader am I? Mm. Yeah. You know, a lot of them just don't know because they just listen to me on Sundays. Yeah, and, right. Well, especially and, now because we're the, yeah. the things that we're leading are so much more invisible than they yeah. used to be. Yeah. So, you know, the evaluation really came on preaching and I don't know, I don't preach like a girl, whatever that means. So, yeah, that means <laughs> yeah right. Just um, teach the word and be inspired by the spirit and yeah. bring love and passion. And I think it's all good. Um, you know, I do think women preachers get evaluated on a lot of things that men do not. And so that's an extra hurdle for a lot of women, especially if you want to be in a larger church where people are much more critical of of the preaching, you know, like, yeah, it's a celebrity culture, even if you're not much of a celebrity. Yeah. Once your church is yeah, about three hundred people, <laughs> you know, once the church is about 250, 300 people, they start evaluating the person on the stage yeah. as a celebrity, even and, even though right. they don't warrant a giant celebrity, even though they know him. It's a you know, you're like a, at the very least, you're a local news weatherman or something. I mean, that's kind of how they treat you. <laughs> I'm going to keep that in mind. Thanks. Yeah. That's encouraging. <laughs> well, you know, one of my students, I think this was so funny. Uh, Jamal, she was a preaching student, a, a black gal, a lead pastor, and she was talking all the time about the fact that everybody was evaluating her shoes that that's all they would talk about was mm-hmm. what shoes she wore so if she wore steve madden's just like actually those are pretty sweet i like those shoes or if she wore red heels she said it was a big kafluffle one day she wore red heels and i was like this is hilarious i don't know that any i mean sometimes people come up to me and say i like your shoes but i've never had anybody like be worked up about my shoes which like like jamail was described which i just thought was so um, weird and i wasn't sure if that was a cultural thing or an ethnic thing but she was like oh, nope, no that's a that's a girl thing that's a it, chick thing oh right? yeah so, and it used to drive me crazy at my last church especially um you like preach your heart out and then someone comes up to you at the end and you're yeah. like oh i'm gonna have some meaningful conversation <laughs> and they either have something negative or positive to say about your shoes yeah one time I had an old guy come up to me and he just looked at me and I thought, hmm, I have no, like, I couldn't read him yeah, at what's, all. What's going to happen? I what's couldn't read happen? him. And he said, I think you're going to break your ankle on those shoes. <laughs> I was wearing kind of platforms, yeah, a little yeah, yeah, bit yeah. like high heel platform shoes. And I, I just went, thank you for your concern. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to say? Yeah. Bless you. Um, oh yeah. So I think what you wear it plays um, into it. I we when I was sometimes not the female on the platform, other people would come to me because I'm the appropriate one to say to tell. Yeah. Uh, I think that woman on the platform, her sweater's too tight. Yeah. Or what? And you're just well, like, I find that we like you I unless female... we're all gonna wear robes. Like women have different bodies than men. Like you just <laughs> have to get past the fact that she has a shape sure i i find because i'm not i'm not especially conservative i know that's a big surprise to anybody <laughs> listening but but I, I there have been probably a handful of times where somebody on the usually on the music team you know is wearing something that i go like okay i'm not i'm not a prude but that's that's a lot right now and then i don't know what to do like if it's an employee i'm like how am i going to talk to a female employee about what they're wearing without feeling like a pervert and then getting sued and then if it's a parishioner then i'm like oh so so those are all is off. I, so in all fairness, I probably would have come to you and said, okay, can you please go talk to that person and tell them to, you know, put on a parka or something, or at least, you know, not only wear a belt. But sometimes know. they were absurd ones. Like, these oh, are yeah. completely fine yeah. things for people. Sure. And I am I'm more conservative on a platform than anywhere else in my life because I don't want that to be a distraction. Yeah, right. And so when I look at women and go, yeah, they're fine, you just... Either you have a problem. Right, yeah. You're the dirty pervert. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or um, you need to understand that women, yeah, like, they yeah. just have... Yeah, we're not going to put like, them up there. Women have breasts. Like, and yeah. she's not in tight, revealing clothes. Like, right. it just, you have to get past it. She's not up there in clear heels and a leopard print. <laughs> <laughs> that could be cool. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we were thinking of different leopard prints. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I have leopard print heels. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, was, I, I was thinking the, the leather micro <laughs> mini was really what I was going Yeah, that's probably yeah. not the right choice. 
But um, so what you wear, your voice, which is another challenge for women. And in preaching classes and things mm-hmm. like that, women can get just railed on for their voices. And that... Like what? Like what kind of... You know, just like you don't have an authoritative voice. You have this, like your voice is too high. Your voice is too hmm. soft. Your voice is like, I haven't, you can hear it right now. I haven't had that problem. So yeah. I, fortunately for me, I have a deeper, loud voice. And so I don't get that. But a lot of women encounter that in criticism oh. of their preaching. And it's just like, this is the voice that God gave them and you can do certain things to create a better sense of authority, but you can't genetically alter your voice. Yeah, no, I'm evaluating my own coaching to female preachers over the years because I had this very gifted student, very gifted preacher and writer. I mean, just, she was fantastic. But when she would preach, her voice would shake. You could hear it quavering. And I, and I would, I would go back and forth and I was, I would say to her, like, I'm not sure, like, I don't think this has anything to do with your gender. I think this is nerves. And she'd go, but I don't feel nervous. I feel great. I'm like, well then whatever's going on, this, we got to address this thing. Cause this yeah. is a massive detractor from the performance of your preaching. I mean, right. It just sounds like, it sounds like you're going to cry, which is, is really hard to listen to somebody tell a joke. If you think they're going to cry, right. or it's really hard to listen to them talk about God's requirement for us to be bold and courageous. If you think they might run off the stage, you know, and need a Kleenex. I mean, that's that the mm-hmm. juxtaposition is so big. Absolutely. Um, and preaching has to be good theater. I mean, preaching has to command the attention of an audience. Um, and I wonder, uh, with, with you know, sort of with that in mind, I wonder if female comedians are paving the way for female preachers to look different and sound different and be more comfortable. Cause you think about, um, you know, it's, I mean, beginning with maybe Tina Fey, I mean, Tina Fey is gorgeous and she gets up there and she looks, she looks like a million bucks. And, uh, and, uh, T- Tessa T- Taylor, T- Tessa Tomlinson, uh, is one that my wife that and I like, yeah, oh, she's like 20 years old. She's a knockout. She's like, she's supermodel pretty and gets up there and in fancy clothes well, and is hilarious. That's an advantage though. Yeah. Because to be the whatever unattractive homely woman preacher, yeah, you get way more criticism than a guy who's maybe really? not some like you would hot I, guy. Oh, I absolutely. Really? I would think that. I just think all your around you, your, your looks are evaluated so much more huh. than men. People huh. just get used to like the man and on sure, you the know guy, like, uh, yeah, in whatever. the pulpit on the platform whatever. But yeah. with women, there's just a lot of evaluation of all that stuff: your clothes, your shoes, your body, your voice, your hair. I've had guys on sound crews tell me multiple times, "I'm so tired of it." If you had just cut all your hair off, we would never have to worry about that mic moving around. And it's like, you know what? Really? You're gonna have to work it out because I'm not gonna cut all my hair off so that. You know, like things like that and about, you know, women joke all the time about where you put your mic pack if you don't wear pants. Yes, you this know. is a common thing. Like if, you, you know, if, you're wearing, like, if you're in slacks and you don't, or if you're wearing a skirt, or right. if you're wearing a dress. So, so women joke about it with each other, but when like a guy or a sound crew guy mm-hmm. makes snide comments about it, then women are kind of a yeah, little bit right. feisty about it. But then I think also we're very, very accustomed to men making um, illustrations using sports and militaristic image and all this stuff that um, we would associate with being masculine. And we just expect that women in the congregation are fine with that. But when women might make some kind of illustration about like childbirth or some other Uh, thing, like there's more chafing there. Yeah. Like it's all of a sudden, like, why are you being so feminine? it's like, (laughs) Um, and I, that's probably not me because I'm not very feminine <laughs> in those three ways. No. Like, I'm never the woman that's going to talk about crafting. That's for sure. That's but, funny. Um, well, I but I have heard that in from other women. That I, I think the best, to. and I want, I want to talk about mistakes that 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 women make to so mm-hmm. if we can be helpful and try and develop them. But I, I do think that that's one huge thing that I always encourage other ministers is to, to find out like whatever the thing is, that's you speak from the center of who you are, find your own voice, find your own rhythm, find your own cadence, find your own authority, be confident in who you are and, and then speak from that, that center. Um, and so, so if you're, if you're, I mean, most of the women in my life are not especially girly. 
you know, so I go, but, but they're still going to like things that, that maybe other people don't like, you know, so speak about your illustrations as being a teacher or speak about your illustrations as being a, a somebody who loves to, to, to bake deluxe, you know, over the top ridiculous cakes as a, a way to spoil your friends, you know, speak, speak from whatever those things are. Um, and, and I think the more authentic you are, the more authority you have, regardless of how the relative maleness or femaleness of the image, um, uh, and even, even with something like childbirth, I mean, I've seen six or seven different female preachers in our circle who've used childbirth as an illustration, but they, they come at it with such power mm-hmm. and provocation that the illustration is secondary to the, the sort of torrent of Holy Ghost activity coming out of them. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one thing that, that, you know, if I could, if I could wave a magic wand that I would help more women in ministry understand is that once you're called into ministry, once you step forward in it, um, don't focus so much on, on being a woman. Focus on being in ministry. Like, if you're already in ministry, like, you've already won. Like, you might, you might have, you know, people who make stupid comments from time to time, but don't, don't feed the trolls. Like, don't engage them. If you're already in ministry, if you're already ordained, you don't need to read extensively more books about being a woman in ministry. You usually read about being in ministry. And, and one of the things that drives me crazy because I'm looking to elevate women. I want women around me. I want to celebrate women. And one of the things that drives me nuts is if I get somebody and I give them a platform, I give them a microphone, I give them a, 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 a leadership shot. And I'm like, all right, here we go. You're getting a shot that maybe you don't even deserve because I believe in the, the validity of this cause. Like, here we go. And they spend all their energy um, telling me why they deserve this shot because they're a woman. And I go, like, don't, I know. <laughs> Let, shut up. Let's keep going. Like, let's do the things now instead of talking about why it's so important that you get to do the things. Let's let's do them. Um, and, and, and I wish that that wasn't as common. But, man, in my experience, again, as a, as a, a celebrator, as an advocate, as an ally, boy, do I, I run into that a lot of people mm-hmm. who just want to keep telling me that they're worthy after I've already said yes, and here you go. Um, let's do the things now instead of, yeah. um, you know, focus on it. I don't know if you ever heard, um, there was at one point this thing going around online from Francis Chan about uh, stop telling everybody you're persecuted. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody hates you at work because you're a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Everybody hates you at work because you're a jerk. Yeah, right. Everybody hates you because you're a goof. Yeah. And I think sometimes there are women in ministry, like I can identify some in my mind right now <laughs> yeah. who think it's always because like they're persecuted as a woman in ministry. Right. And it's like, I think it's more because your personality is really difficult or I think it's more sure. because you're not as gifted as you think you are. Yeah. Um, That's a big one. And so yeah. there's that piece of it, right? Like someone looks for some other thing to attribute mm-hmm. their conflict or their the, you know, the impediments that they have. But the other piece too is the bitterness that comes out of wounding that's real. Yeah. And so I would say as a male advocate for women in ministry, when you encounter someone who's saying like, trying to justify her place, yeah. it's probably um, a time to figure out what's the wounding behind that. Yeah, and right. how, do you, how do you speak into that? And if it's someone that you're really like partnering with somehow, or you have a mentoring role with, then I think you have to encourage them to explore that. Yeah. And you know, that's tough again from a man to being like, so are you just better? Is that why you're like this? That's, <laughs> that's, that's a hard conversation from a guy. However, I think when we are tell any ministry leader, yeah. like, you know, you're, your most effective, most fruitful ministry and your place of greatest joy is going to be when you minister out of wholeness and health. Yeah, not out of your hurts. And so yeah. it seems like there's some kind of pain cycle that's going on here for you that um, maybe yeah, that's good. could be addressed. Well, and, I'll, t- I'll tell you, I mean, speaking frankly, I'll, I'll try, you know, if we're, if we're, if I'm working with a particular gal, and I want to elevate her. I see promise in her. I'm not just, I don't elevate just any female. I mean, if I see somebody with a calling on their life, I see somebody with potential, I go, great, I'm going to help them. I'm going to support them. I'm going to give them opportunities. Um, we're going to craft it. As soon as I start getting the, the whiff of that, that bruise, that hurt, as soon as I start getting backlash, um, you know, like if I give them critique and, and their response is, well, that's just because I'm a woman. You don't get it, Dave. Like that. 
Then I go, okay, I'll, I'll try once. I'll give it one honest-to-God shot once I get that. And after that, I'll just ignore them. And, the, and, I, and I think, I wish, I wish there was a better way to help them understand that, like, you just, you just lost your, your best friend. Like, because I want things for you that you want, that I think God wants for you. But I, I, cannot, I cannot slow down enough or help you unpack all this stuff um, about why yeah. you need to know why you got to tell me why I'm a misogynist. I mean, that's like, but sometimes I, I think that's the, that's the only way that's the real work of yeah. the advocate, whether it's for a woman in ministry or for some other person that's been kind of either hurt or marginalized anywhere. Yeah. Right. They, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a woman or any other person that's had right. that experience then they come into things and it requires often a little bit of extra patience. And I think there were some people that had some extra patience with me while I worked that stuff out. But mm, that's good. I also feel like um, I just doing all of it, the whole thing of saying like, you have to do this to be obedient to God. So if my constant motivation is obedience to God, sure. when right. I recognize like, okay, this person is, um, I think he's a jerk and mm -hmm. I think he might be a jerk because I'm a woman. Then my next question is, so what does it mean for me to be obedient to God in this situation? Like, do I need this? Like, maybe I just say, sure, eh, you know, I don't need to be in partnership or in relationship with this person or is God telling me I need to be? And if that's the case, I just need to get beyond the fact that he has a problem with a woman and just get down to business. Yeah. Like, let's just do the thing. Yeah. And right. so, well, I think that's the best strategy. And I, I, I mean, the thing I'm, I'm a little bit talking out of turn, you know, put, putting, pulling back the curtain on maleness, but the number one uh, thing that I hear from men who work with women is they go, I just want to talk about the work. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about gender anymore. I don't want to talk about um, how you feel as a woman because I don't want to talk about how I feel as a man. I want to talk about, like, what's the project? What's the series? What's the thing? Now, it doesn't That's mean That's easy to say from a position of privilege, right? We've yeah. been thinking about this when it comes to race, too. Mm -hmm. Let's stop talking about race. Let's just talk about the thing that we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, it's easy to say from that position. And it is a position of privilege. And that's mm -hmm. why I think, but I also think it's, if, if it's going to change, if more and more women are going to get opportunity, if more and more women are going to step forward and lead, I think it helps to know what specifically the opposition is. You know, is the opposition your gender or is the opposition that the pace is slowed down because we have to talk about gender? Mm -hmm. And I'm not defending that, but I do think more women would get a lot further, a lot faster if they knew that. Right. Um, and and it, it could at least you know confront it head on or, or move past it. And that I, I honestly, I you know, you say sometimes God reveals to you that somebody might be a jerk. I go, it's me. It's always me. I'm the jerk. But I want to I want to be less jerky. I want to be more open. I want to divest myself of privilege. I want to use my platform to elevate others. Um, but it's it's a lot. It's hard. Yeah, but I think the other thing too, like when you say, I think you use the phrase like get ahead or move forward. And it's like, mm -hmm. what am I really trying to do here in ministry? Like, am I trying mm -hmm. to get ahead? Am I trying to move forward? Am I trying to be the woman who, I wasn't trying to be the woman who was mm -hmm. the lead pastor of the biggest True. free Methodist church. You know, like that was not my goal. And I think a lot of times if we're all thinking about in ministry, like, yeah. What's my next step? How do I get ahead? How do I get to that next pinnacle of whatever? If it's not God calling us there, then sure, we end up in fraudulent. these, yeah. and we end up in these situations where it's like we're trying to force our way in as women, for instance. Sure. Like I'm, whatever. There's like two new books out this year from Christian women about like breaking the glass steeple or something. Oh, really? That's yeah. A, that's a funny thing. <laughs> and um, I think, like, I'm a, is it my job to break the glass steeple? I don't think so. I think it's my job to listen to God It'll and be, go where he calls yeah. me. Well, and, which I think the, the net result of that will be breaking the glass steeple. I, mean, I think yeah. it has in my circumstance here. Yes, that, you absolutely. Know? I, I do think, too, that there's a... Um, when you when you think about what is the thing I'm trying to do in ministry, it's the thing. It's the same thing I'm trying to do in life is is to flourish and to be optimized. And and I always am uncomfortable when I think about that for myself. 
like because I because I think about all of Jesus, right? You know, t- telling me, you know, um, you know, narrow is the road that, that leads to life eternal. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. You know, whoever's not willing to lay down his life for me is not worthy to be called my servant. So I go, well, that doesn't sound like optimization or flourishing. That sounds like self-sacrifice. I'm very comfortable sacrificing for myself. I'm very un like sacrificing being self-sacrificial for God. I'm very uncomfortable thinking about my own self-optimization. However, when I think about my kids, then I go, absolutely what I think Jesus wants for my for my son and my daughter is that they would flourish, mm-hmm. that they would function in the full measure of their giftedness, that they would develop their understanding, that they would operate and flow in wisdom and knowledge, that they would be able to exercise their gifts in such a way that God is glorified. I want them to, to experience abundant life. And I think, I, I, mean, I can defend that biblically six ways from Sunday in my sleep, but certainly that's the heart of God for his children. So I go, if that's true for them... That's true for me. And that's true for women. That's true. That's true for every human. And so I think that's really what I mean by get ahead. That's what we ought to mean by get ahead is how do we advance? Um, not, not our position, you know, not, not how do I get more money or how do I become more important, but how do, how does the spirit of God flow through me with such efficacy, such, such ease, such, such wonder. Um, yeah, exactly. And, and boy, do I love seeing that, that I, I don't know that there's a, uh, a better sense of exaltation for me as a developer of people than when I see the people around me or beneath me experience that they get in the flow of God's gifts. And, 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 and you brought up race before when I see my, my black friends or my Hispanic friends see that, that feels amazing. If I have some small part in that, that feels spectacular. When I see, when I feel like I've been able to use my privilege or my platform to see that in women, I feel such relief and such like, um, such gratitude um, because again, that, that's what we want to see. And I think so kind of stepping back to where we were earlier for a lot of women, they don't see the examples. They don't see that, that vision of themselves in certain mm-hmm. leadership roles in the church. And so to even, you know, begin to understand or have this dream of this is what God created me to be and do mm-hmm. is a little bit more challenging where, I mean, how many, you probably have a better idea, like how many men get into pastoral ministry in their 20s and don't last into their 30s? Oh, because sure. it it was really something like, it seems like, you know, yeah. I love Jesus, I love the church, I should do this, yeah, but yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. really what God's you know, God's intent for them was that's not where the Holy Spirit is going to flow through them in a way where they feel, you know, in the sweet spot of God's design for their life and purpose and all these things. And so I think for women not seeing that, they Mm -hmm. don't even have a sense, a concept or a dream that maybe that's what God created them Mm -hmm. to do and gifted them to be. And so... That's part of the, like, just giving people the imagination. I love it when people now tell me, like, my my kids play church and my, <laughs> my daughters fight over who's going to be Pastor K. Like, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, that's, yeah it is that's amazing. Awesome. It can bring a tear to my eye when yeah. I hear stories like that. I so I so far have no one who said to me, my kids fight over what we're going to play church or they want to be Pastor Dave. I've never, that's, <laughs> I, like, I yeah, bet they have, yeah. though. I bet it, they have. It's when they come upstairs and they've drawn tattoos all over their <laughs> Like, look, mom, I'm holy. Um, I'm holy. Yeah. What about uh, what about heroes? I mean, who, who are the women to whom you look for for inspiration? Oh man, definitely one of my heroes is Danielle Strickland. I don't know who that is. Oh my gosh, you have to check her out. So she um, is she a writer, preacher? Yes, 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 yeah. and yes. So she was part of the Salvation Army. I mean, okay. She, she got saved as as an addict by okay. Salvation Army people, yeah. um, and then ministered like did a lot of street ministry with Salvation Army. But she just is a gifted, gifted communicator. Mm. Um, but you know, just one of those people that you look at and it's like she's the real deal. Mm-hmm. She's very humble, and yet, you know, she's been on every main stage, like Catalyst and Exponential, yeah, yeah, yeah. and like she's a phenomenal speaker. Uh-huh. And she's now, I mean, she's left the Salvation Army. Her husband is still a Salvation Army officer, I think. Um, so she's just had her hand in all kinds of like cool justice projects and, 
Um, but in terms of someone as a preacher that I can somewhat identify with, I, I totally like vibed with how she spoke and, you know, like I can listen to a Christine Kane who I think is, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like just an awesome preacher, but like, I will never be like that. That's the same flow. And yeah. yeah, And there's, you know, because there are fewer well-known models for women to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I just felt, especially five years ago, it was a lot harder to find someone and go, Oh, see, that's what it could sound like to be a woman who seems genuine in her skin. Um, but also someone I can relate to. And mm-hmm. so anyway, Daniel Strickland for sure. Yeah. And a couple of years ago, so I don't usually do anything that's just for women. <laughs> Yeah. It's a little secret about myself. Sure. Um, I'm not a yeah, fan. You, know, you, don't, you don't go to speak at conferences that are just for women. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, yeah, yeah. And I've never had that desire to start like platforming myself for women's conferences like, and things. Like, like, yeah, I, I don't want to do that. Like, I have men's conferences and stuff. I'm like, I, <laughs> I thought you were going to say a women's conference. I, I was <laughs> you probably shouldn't. Sure, yeah. That's it. Like, <laughs> do, you, do you need a target for your aggression? <laughs> I can be that for you. <laughs> um. So never been into doing things that were like all women's deals. A couple of retreats here and there for women pastors. And um, I heard two years ago that Daniel Strickland wanted to start a women's speakers boot camp. Basically, oh, that's cool. she had been yeah. on, the, on all these kind of big stage Christian things. Yeah. And yeah. they were always asking her, well, who else is there? We just don't know anybody else. Because she's yeah. turning down way more things sure. than she ever does. And so... She basically said, I feel like I need to start helping create an awareness of who else is Mm -hmm. out there so that when these men who are putting together conferences are trying to find women speakers, it's not so hard. And so she did the women's speakers boot camp. I went to, I signed up for the first one. I said to Dave, I really want to go. Like, I really want to go. It's kind of expensive. He's like, go for it. And so there were some things about that time that they definitely did address um, you know, like what are some of the hurts that you've had yeah. as a woman? Yeah. And I didn't even expect her to do that. Cause she's definitely the type that's like, whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I think it. over time, she's just seen the impediments yeah. to, for more women being able to be a part oh. of some of these ministries. So anyway, um, that for me was a great experience and it was all women. And yeah. I don't normally do that stuff. I, I, so, like, all my coaching has been co-ed groups yeah. and anything else. I asked a guy who um, was 70 to coach my preaching. Hmm. And, uh, man, he was tough. Yeah. And there well, were I times think, I think that I was cross, like... I think cross-gender mentoring is really important, especially for because there is, at least uh, functionally, if not theologically, there is functionally a class ceiling for and the Billy Graham rule where men and women can't be together, I think is, is really, that's hard for women because if they can't get mentored by men, there, there's not enough females ahead of them to go around. So yeah, that's right. There's zero. My context, so, zero. so, I mean, you know, and we have three rules at Westlands for our male, female relationships. It's like kind of make, it's like triangle model. He said, if you're going to have two staff members together that are a guy and a gal, and they got to be, it's only going to be in the day and it's got to be public, you know, so and it's got, and they got to be accessible. Um, so rather than saying we'll never have uh, a closed door meeting between a man and a woman or a man and a woman can never be in a car together. Right. Uh, because those things, again, really, they, they really frustrate women. And it was my female employees years ago, almost a decade ago now that came to me and said, um, you know what, Dave, we know that you think you're an advocate for women. But if somebody reports to you directly and they're a man, they get a two-hour lunch meeting and you guys go and have coffee and you walk around the park. If if somebody reports to you directly and they're a woman, um, then they get 15 minutes in your office with the door open. And I was like, yeah, because I don't want to go to jail or hell. (laughs) And so so coming up with a new model, which we did a lot of research about that. We read a lot of stuff out of the military because, of course, there's male-female relationships in the military. Right. Um, And that's what we came up with. It's daytime, public, and accessible. Then then you can have those. So this person is now kind of um, persona non grata, but John Ortberg. If you Google his guidelines for men and women working together, he does like a five or six minute video. It is so good. good? 
Yeah, I feel like it is so good. It's just like really clear, concise. Um, I, I largely, I mean, you mentioned Catalyst and Exponential in here, John Arperma. I've largely um, abandoned the church as a source for inspiration, both in, in leadership and in organizational government structure, polity, just because it's, it all, it's like such an echo chamber. You know, I just think the church is moving too slowly. Mm. Uh, what about other great female, pre- female preachers and leaders? I mean, I, I know it's silly because everybody either dogs on them or kind of has an of course. But I still, I still like uh, Joyce Meyer and I still like Beth Moore. I like them both because yeah. they're such great Bible teachers. Uh, Joyce Meyer, of course, is not quite a Bible teacher, but I still think she's inspirational. And, I never really listen to Joyce Meyer. Like, if I've seen her on TV, I just kind of go past. My next-door neighbor, when Carmel and I were married, I think it was the first year of us being married, my next-door neighbor was a very foul living woman and gave her life to Jesus because she listened to Joyce Meyer. Yeah. And and that was the hip check for me where I went, oh, who am I to judge this person who's leading somebody to Jesus that sees me every day of my life? And something, nothing about my life makes her want to follow Jesus. <laughs> right. But Joyce Meyer does. I mean, right. Okay. And I think Joyce Meyer had an impact on my mom who mm. deals with anxiety. And so I think Joyce Meyer has a book that really impacted my mom. Um, so who else do I really like? I... Um, I like Bianca Oltoff. I don't know who that is either. What's uh, her name? Bianca Oltoff. And she is... I forget what she calls herself. <laughs> She's like Puerto Rican and mm. something else. But um, she's pretty fiery. Yeah. Um, very funny. <laughs> you know, just really fun to listen to. But there's usually some depth in... Julian of Norwich. That's the name I didn't You were O for your mystical Who's, experiences. Yes. Well, yes. there was a word I was trying not to say. She's That's, not one of my favorite preachers. <laughs> well, no, I know of course not. I don't think she uh, all of her all of her experiences with God in prayer, she described in sexual terms. So there was a particular word that I was trying not to use, but it was yeah. driving me nuts like a You came to it. Yeah. You know, there's a um, there's some people, some women pastors who I have enjoyed reading. And I definitely think Beth Moore is, I mean, her voice these last few years has been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, Nancy Herbert's a great writer. A great, I mean, she, it's I, been I a wish. a time, but I read some things. Yeah, her. the rubber rules of the rubber bands. Although I do, she, she, she cites Patrick Lencioni too much. I mean, <laughs> I, I've got a mentor. So for years and years after working with Len Sweet, everything I said was Len Sweet this and that. So it takes some time to differentiate. But, yeah. But I always thought Nancy Orbit was a very strong leader. Very there good is a young woman who is at, um, what was Rob Bell's church in Grand Rapids? Well, Marshall. Yep. Her name is Ashley Eland. She's now the teaching pastor there. Oh, really? And uh, I've listened to her a little bit, oh, and I think cool. she's she's really, she's, really strong. She's sharp. That's and cool. Some of, like, I've read short things, um, like maybe it was a blog post or something. I don't know, but I just thought, wow, she writes really beautifully. Um, well, like Nadia Boltz Weber, I like, although, although I have some critiques of her, I think, like, like many people who are... She wrote a book called Pastrix, which honestly, the best part of that book is the name. Like, that's what a <laughs> hilarious term. Um, but, you know, as a tattooed sort of rabble rouser kind of guy, I'm both attracted to and repulsed by other tattooed rabble rousers. Because um, I like that somebody's going to explore, you know, their own self-expression. I think tattoos have a great spiritual heritage to them. And so I really like those things about Nadia Boltz Weber. But, but so, sometimes I think she overplays the peculiarity card in the same way that so many other tattooed rabble rousers do. Yeah. Um, so, but I but just I know who like, she is, but I don't think I've ever heard her preach. Yeah. She takes a little, is, uh, an affectation in her voice that I think is disingenuous. Now, I don't know. I mean, who am I to her? I mean, she's a huge celebrity and she's got a massive following and I'm, I'm, I'm none of those things. Um, but I do, I go like, Oh, I think, I think you could be more effective I don't know how much more effective. I mean, maybe she could be as effective she as me. Has when the she the preaching could, voice. Yeah, yeah. She could she could reduce her effectiveness by ten thousand percent and be <laughs> as effective as me. But yeah, I think that's a, I do. I have a student, Valerie Crumpton, former student who went through the doctoral program in preaching at, at George Fox uh, Seminary, and I just love listening to Valerie preach. I love it, and and she works with T D Jakes, who's one of his executive staff members. Um, but but she's got that. 
that romantically black thing where she flows between singing and preaching that I uh, honestly I like oh I love it I just, I eat it up she when I was going through a really difficult time in my life um, I reached out to her for a project at Westwinds and asked her to, to help with something and she left me a voicemail where she started like getting amped up and she was kind of preaching on my voicemail and then started singing and I remember standing in the departure terminal. Oh, oh, I wish I would have kept it. <laughs> I, I, I kept it for about three months. But, I mean, I stood in the departure terminal at the Kansas City airport, and I sobbed like a baby listening mm-hmm. to that voicemail over and over and over again. And because I come from a charismatic background, the concept of the anointing is one that I both love and loathe. Uh, but I don't know what else she would call it other than yeah. just such anointing. I was just like, this is this is healing me. Um, this preaching prophecy, uniquely black, uniquely feminine. It was so, yeah. Yeah. yeah it was so, so powerful. So, Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Okay. Powerful. She is, uh, she's written two, three books at least on racial reconciliation, but mm. she's also... Uh, preaching at Quest Church in Seattle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That's my uh, Quest Church and New Song Church oh, in, in L.A., uh, Dave Gibbons Church. I, I think, I, I love, I love Asian churches. I have such a, uh, the way they do racial integration, it seems miles ahead of everybody else. Mm. Um, I think, you know, Quest is just diverse. Yeah. I think they're Right now, it's uh, Gail Song Bantam is yeah. the lead pastor at Quest. Okay. I have never listened to her preach, so I don't know. No, um, I heard her a couple times. Yeah. And Brenda Salter McNeil just preaches there sometimes. She was like interim before Bantam. Um, and well, you mentioned Teeny Jakes. Priscilla, Priscilla Shire is mm-hmm. amazing yeah. as a speaker. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's just like she's been doing it since she was a baby. <laughs> yeah, 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 like grow, growing up around that, you kind of hope some of it, uh, you know, rubs off. Well, uh, we're, we're about out of time, but I want to say yeah. thanks to you, and, and you're such a great friend to me. And I, I don't know if anybody would be interested to know this, but you're on the Chapter House board, so, you know. Everybody's uh, interested to know Yes, that. yes, absolutely, yeah. But, <laughs> and, uh, and they can listen to me preach anytime online. Yeah, yeah, and they should, and they absolutely <laughs> should. So, thanks for being with us, Kay. Thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on the Chapter House Podcast. Yeah.